Good morning. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I also serve as one of the pastors and elders here. And as Bernie and Jim mentioned, we uh, are wrapping up a four-week series called Carols, Why We Sing. And our main passage this morning will be the familiar birth narrative found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1-20. through 20. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn there. I mean, this has been, in my opinion, a, a great series. My wife often rightly accuses me of listening to songs and then making up my own lyrics. And oftentimes I think that actually the lyrics I make up are uh, much better than a lot of the songs. Oftentimes this gets me in trouble. If I hear a song on the radio, I start humming it or singing it. Somebody will look at me and be like, do you know what that song means? Do you know what the song is singing about? Like, I have no idea, but it's a catchy tune. And so this series has allowed us to actually look at some of the lyrics found in uh, four uh, popular carols as we see the truth in them that is rooted in Scripture. And it's been great for us to uh, focus on these truths and be encouraged by them. And, and really it protects us from a lot of the pitfalls that we can fall into uh, in the Christmas season. I think of, of just, just this mindset that often comes in the month of December where we feel the pressure, where we just have to survive the holiday season. It's just a busy busy time. I mean, the, the, how Christmas is commercialized and how uh, Christmas music is playing on the radio and how people are, our stores are already starting Christmas sales like well before Halloween and we have all these pressures to find the perfect gift and we have these pressures to uh, prepare our house for family to come in or, or we have these pressures to pack up and get all the presents together for us to travel somewhere to make the the, the perfect cookies or to cook the perfect meals. And, and in all of that, um, the, the purpose in which we worship. Now obviously Christmas season is not the only time that we focus on the incarnation and, and the implications of the person and work of Christ. We uh, hopefully are engaging God through His Word daily and in prayer. And, and every Sunday we come and we celebrate the resurrection. But in this season... And I think by focusing on some of these carols, it has protected us to, to just tell us to stop, to pause, take a breath, and remember that Christ has come and that He will return. I think it also has protected us and, and will protect us from this pitfall of, of just hopelessness. Uh, for many of us, Christmas is a time where we uh, can be with friends and family and it conjures up great memories and, and hopes and expectations of family traditions, but also for many of us, uh, this Christmas season can um, bring about a sense of hopelessness. It, it reminds us of people that we don't have any longer. It reminds us of, of bad memories or um, heightens a sense of loneliness. And the reality is that, that the message of the Gospel, what really the Christmas message is, serves as a protection for us to remind us that there is hope despite the earthly perspective, despite what we're experiencing and the flood of emotions that we feel in this season, we have a Savior who took on flesh to dwell among us that we would be made right with God and would, have, would, would be with Him for eternity. And then another pitfall that we can fall into obviously is it's just the familiarity of this message, the familiarity of the passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 2, that we can become so familiar with this that it's easy to dismiss. Yeah, I know that. Let's get to more meatier Christian things. It's like, no. The things that we're discussing this morning is, is really the, the bedrock of our faith. That God took on flesh to be among us, that 
He is a great high priest who knows all of our weaknesses, that He came and lived a sinless life and then died a death as a substitute for us that we could be made right with God. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we could be called sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. So I think it's been a helpful series and this morning we're looking at one of my personal favorite carols, O Holy Night. And before we look at some of the lyrics and verses in that song, let's read Luke chapter 2, O Holy Night. It's about that night in which Christ was born. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truths found in Luke chapter 2. We thank You for the truths that we're singing this morning. And we pray that we would find great encouragement and hope in them this morning. Father, we want to pray for the capital C Church of Syracuse and all the local expressions that make up your body. We pray that right now as your word is being proclaimed, that you would continue to raise up a people who would be salt and light in this place. Pray for us this morning that you would use your word to stir our affections for you, that you would um, not allow the familiarity of the birth narrative to breed contempt, but that we would um, be reminded in a fresh way this morning, of the glorious and precious news of the Gospel. Father, we ask this in Your Son's name. Amen. So, the song, O Holy Night, 
was penned in 1847 when a parish priest asked somebody in his congregation who was known more for writing poems than church attendance to write a poem for a Christmas Eve Mass. And so this Frenchman was a wine commissioner in a region near Paris, and so he took up the task in a dusty stagecoach riding into Paris, he penned this poem, picturing himself in uh, the, the, the stable next to the manger with the shepherd and with Mary and Joseph, and, and just writing from his perspective as well as the knowledge that he had of the Scriptures. Well, after he penned the poem, he realized this would be a better song than a poem. So he went to a friend of his who was not a Christian, but was actually Jewish. He was a famous composer, and he composed the music for O Holy Night. Uh, immediately, the song gained some popularity, was sung all over France, and then began to spread throughout Europe as a great Christmas song. And then... A few years later, the author of the song, O Holy Night, became a socialist, walked away from the church, and once the French government found out about this, and the church found out about it, they outlawed the song, O Holy Night. They didn't want people singing it. People still sang it in France, but they couldn't sing it publicly. They had to sing it in the privacy of their own homes. Shocking for a moment to think that that song, O Holy Night, rich with truth, was written and composed by two people who were not followers of Christ. doesn't change the truth written in the song, but nonetheless, just a shocking thing. The song gained even greater notoriety when an English writer translated the song and it just began uh, spreading in America and even broadly in the English-speaking world. And then, uh, in its own right, A Christmas Miracle relating to O Holy Night, in 1906, there was a... Uh, professor who actually, he worked with Thomas Edison in 1906, he did something that many thought was impossible. What he did was this, he, he took a new type of generator, and this guy's name was Reginald Fezzedin. Fezzedin spoke through a microphone for the first time in human history through uh, radio waves, read the narrative that we just read, Luke chapter 2. And then he picked up his violin and he played O Holy Night. And so you had uh, radio operators on ships around the world astonished that they were hearing a voice and then they heard music through radio waves. You had newspaper operators who were used to hearing these coded impulses through these machines. All of a sudden hears a voice reading Luke chapter 2 and a song being played. And and in this moment, I mean, it, it completely changed how people communicated. It completely changed, I mean, revolutionized how people communicated to one another, how they listened to music, as this was the first thing that words and song broadcast through radio waves. Oh, holy night. So again, just think about it for a second. As, as astonishing and shocking as, as the story is, the fact that two unbelievers composed this, as shocking and astonishing as the fact that Oh, Holy Night was, was the first song ever played through radio raves, uh, those things just pale in comparison to how scandalous and shocking uh, the, the content of Oh, Holy Night is. The incarnation, the reality of the incarnation, the fact that God took on flesh to dwell among us. I mean, that's shocking. That's astonishing. That's, in many respects, hard to believe that God, our Creator, would do that. And yet, that's exactly the truth in which this song sings to. It's exactly what Luke chapter 2 tells us. I mean, think about the first two lines in the song, O Holy Night. O Holy Night. 
The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. I mean, think about it. I mean, oh, holy night. This night. The, the reality of the incarnation. If you would uh, turn, you'll see it on the screen as well, but turn to 1 John chapter 1, 1-4. through Where you see uh, John... Uh, in John chapter 1 of his gospel, talks about how God took on flesh, the Word became flesh, how He came in grace and truth. And then in his first letter, his first epistle, writes it as well. It's particularly in the first four verses. He says this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is writing this letter to oppose Gnostic teaching. It's, it comes from this Greek word where it means you've got to have this special knowledge. And, and they thought you needed this special knowledge other than trusting in Jesus. In addition to that, part of this teaching was they said, no, 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 no. Matter is bad. The physical world is bad. So God could not take on flesh and dwell among us. He took on something that appeared like flesh, but it wasn't really like humanity. And John is writing in the, in the very beginning of this epistle, he writes in the beginning of his gospel, Luke 2 tells us that no, God did indeed take on flesh. He's fully and completely God. Jesus, fully and completely God. Fully and completely human. John's saying that we, we saw it. We saw his flesh. We interacted with him. We, we touched his hands. We, we heard him speak. It is indeed Jesus was human. God took on flesh. It's, it's a miracle. And what John is attesting to is that, that the incarnation, historically, it's a reality. He's attesting to the fact that theologically speaking, it's a certainty. And personally, the incarnation, it's a personal necessity that we trust it, that we trust Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what the song, O Holy Night, is. I mean, that night, Christ took on flesh, dwelt among us. And then this idea of holiness. I mean, the night is, is special. We're not sure if it was December 25th or not. But, but the night in itself, yes, was special. But, but the holiness of God taking on our nature, became, becoming like us in every respect, that a holy, righteous God. I mean, let's consider the attributes, some of the attributes of God for a moment. If you think about the fact that God is eternal, okay, contrast that to us. Like we're not eternal. There was a moment where we didn't exist, and there was a moment where we did exist. Not so with God. Think about the fact that He's omnipresent, that He's everywhere. We're not everywhere. You don't know what's happening behind you right now. You're looking at me. You're not everywhere. You don't know what's happening at your house right now unless you're like Rick St. James and his camera's everywhere. You don't, don't know. Omniscient, he knows everything. He knows the hairs on our head, he knows our thoughts, he knows our hearts, he formed us. 
molded us. Now, many of you think you know it all, but you don't. In fact, the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. The immutability of God, the fact that God doesn't change. I mean, consider that for a moment. His character does not change. We change. We're changing all the time. Remember when I was in, uh, I think it was my freshman year of college, I set a record where I ate Taco Bell, I think it was nine straight days in a row. Like, and I was proud of this. Like, every meal, nine straight days, that's what I did. I don't know why. You could ask me why. It's because I was 18. That's what 18-year-olds do. And so, uh, it was over a year ago, but I went to Destiny, and I made a poor decision, and I ate Taco Bell. And by the second bite into the taco, it was, Father, forgive me, I know not what I've done. Just immediately, it's over. I mean, it's like, I think of Paul's words. I mean, to live as Christ and to die is gain. I'm thinking gain. I want gain right now. Our bodies are changing. We can't handle it anymore. I also think of what I used to eat. I used to make this thing. I may have told you this before, but I used to make this thing called chicken parm where I boiled some noodles, uh, angel hair pasta. I took some ragu sauce, put it on top of that, put some like four cheese Mexican cheese on it, uh, took some Tyson chicken nuggets, put them in the microwave, cut them up on top of it, and I'm like, ta-da, chicken parm. And um, uh, several months ago, my wife was out of town. I had this hankering for like, Good old-fashioned college chicken parm. And, and again, like third bite, biggest mistake of my life. I mean, it was just over. I can't handle that stuff anymore. We're changing. God doesn't change. And the reality is that, that His power and His immutability and the fact that He's eternal and that the fact that He knows everything and that He's everywhere, those things are awesome. And those things, we should praise Him because of that. But, but because He's holy, the fact that He's righteous, the fact that He's, he's pure, fact that not only does he not sin, but he can't look upon sin with, with approval. And that he's working for his glory, and he's working for our good, his holiness. And in the incarnation, we see Christ and his holiness, Jesus. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Go back to Luke 2. Let's walk slowly through some of the verses here. Thinking about the night Christ was born. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In their eyes, all the world was the Roman Empire. the largest empire at this time. One of the largest empires the world has ever seen. And Caesar demands that everyone should be registered. Now what would most likely happen is they had within a year to register and they had to go um, to specific places. So Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to register. We're not sure why he took Mary. Maybe he took Mary, had to register her because they were betrothed. Maybe because she was great with child. and She was going to give birth any moment. We're not sure. But, but nonetheless, he decrees that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. It's just amazing for a moment. This is in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where there's a prophecy that said the Savior of the world, Christ himself, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them 
in the end. I'll just consider this for a moment. I mean, consider the, the sovereignty of God. So the prophet proclaims in Micah 5 2 that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. God, mindful of little Joseph and little Mary, nobody's from nowhere in the Roman Empire. Yet God, in order to accomplish his purposes, moves in the heart of Caesar. We're seeing this as we study Exodus as well. He moves in the heart of Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes. In this case, he moves in the heart of Caesar to use his pride against him. I want to know how many people I rule over and his greed, and I want to make sure that I'm getting my due to ensure that Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem so that Christ could be born where God had ordained and decreed him to be born. Just think about that for a moment. That God is in control of all things at all times. Not only is He in control, but He's working these things for His glory. And then Romans tells us that He works for the good of all those who love Him. So He's working those things for our good as well. Remember His holiness. He's not trying to punish us for things. The punishment has been taken care of on the cross for those who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. And so again, we are talking about this idea of hopelessness and around Christmas time. And we can, it's easy to just fall into despair and I don't pretend to know all the things that we're going through, but, but consider this. That we have a God. I mean, Obama is not in control. Vladimir Putin is not in control. The economy does not dictate our future. I mean, God will move in the hearts of chancellors and rulers and dictators and and emperors and presidents and prime ministers and kings to accomplish His purposes for His glory and our good. Not saying that you are the center of the world. I'm saying God is working for His glory, but He's going to orchestrate things. He's going to move things in such a way where they will work out for our good. Despite how we perceive them in this moment, we must trust that we have a God who's working for us. In Isaiah 40, verse 2, it says that, that God holds the waters in the, in the hollows of His hand. I mean, He's placed the stars. He's placed the planets. I mean, it, it's good for us to just think about how massive God is and how in control he is, and how little we are, and not in like a low self-esteem thing, but just the fact that He is mindful of us. He's mindful of you today. He's mindful of me today. In fact, the Chalcedonian Creed is written in 451. I mean, it says that, that the incarnation was for us and for our salvation. He's mindful of us, and He's demonstrated His faithfulness in sending Jesus. He's sovereign, and we see that. And also in this passage, I mean, we see that, that Jesus could have been born to a rich family. He could have been born in Jerusalem. He could have been born in Rome. He could have been born in all these different circumstances. Yet for some reason, God willed it such that Jesus would be born in such humble circumstances. Demonstrating His humility where He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And then he was laid in a, in a feeding trough. Now that doesn't sound good in a song. Away in a feeding trough. But that's most likely where he was laid. 
Again, you see the humility of our God who, who initiates salvation, who pursues us, who woos us, who draws us to Him. And then He executes it. He accomplishes it. In the same way for us, I mean, may we not position ourselves at work, may we not position ourselves in our families, may we not try to get what's due us and live with the sense of entitlement, but may we take the low position, like our Savior. A servant is not greater than his master. May we take the low position and use Christ as a model for us to walk in humility and a posture of serving others. Just two simple observations from Luke 1 through 7, other than the massive observation which God took on flesh to dwell among us. Okay, we'll look, we'll keep on going. We're going to spend a longer time on this first verse of O Holy Night. We won't spend as much time on the others. So then it says this So, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angels' voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night, O holy night, O night divine. The, the long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Uh, John Piper says that, that Christmas, I love this phrase, Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. We don't often think about that. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. The author of O Holy Night got that. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. He recognized our depravity. He recognized our need for a Savior. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. See, succinctly put, our great need for a Savior and at the same time our sin nature and our rebellious tendencies. Romans 1, Paul writes this in considering the phrase, long lay the world in sin and error pining. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in our sin nature, we take truth and we suppress it. Push it down. Cover it up. For what can be known about God, verse 19 says, is plain to them. Who? The world. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So everyone, everywhere, in general revelation recognizes that God exists. Namely, His invisible attributes, His power, His might, His divine nature, all are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchange, they made a trade, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because of this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, 
He's emphasizing this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is our state before Christ. Whatever truth, whatever revelation we have, we suppress it. And instead of worshiping the immortal God, what we do is we worship man. We worship creation instead of creator. Okay, I mean, we don't have to think long about examples of this. I mean, I I work out at Planet Fitness and I just see these dudes, especially I just went yesterday, Saturday afternoon, got like 24-year-old guys who are just eyeballing themselves in the mirror. I mean, just like this, back and forth. I mean, just, you see it, just worshiping themselves as they lift weights. And I don't, there's not much to worship here, so I don't typically do that. I'm just looking pretty lame on an an elliptical. But nonetheless, I mean, we see it worshiping creation rather than the Creator. We see it from cars to homes to jobs. I mean, I can go on and on and on. In our flesh, in and of our own nature, we'll suppress truth and we'll worship creation instead of creator. And the more truth that we're exposed to, I mean, if you're here this morning and have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the fact that you're hearing truth right now, the more truth that we're exposed to, the greater effort we will have to exert in order to suppress truth. General revelation, special revelation. Looking at the invisible attributes of God that are displayed through creation or hearing His Word preached or reading the Bible, nonetheless, in our nature we will suppress it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. But then, I love this line, I mean, in in this, this hymn, in this carol, a thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices. Like, this is good news when we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt, we're spiritually depraved, we cannot save ourselves, we have nothing in and of ourselves to save us. I mean, think about the, the message of that, the indictment. I mean, people don't want to hear they're sinful, and yet that's not the entirety of the gospel. The entirety of the gospel says, no, God took on flesh to dwell among us to live a sinless life so that He could take our place and absorb the wrath of God. He defeated death. This is, this is a thrill of hope. This allows our weary souls to rejoice. This isn't just some general Christmas message. It's not about Christmas trees and wreaths and lights and presents. I mean, this is, this is salvation. This is the good news for the world. Think of what Jesus says in Luke 13. Luke 13. Um, Some people are asking him about why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? And in Luke 13, 1 through 5, I'll read it. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate had killed some seemingly innocent people in order to sacrifice. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So many were saying, well, they must have been really sinful because they were punished that way. Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And, and so people are thinking about these, these broad philosophical concepts. Why would God punish them in this way? God must have been really angry at them. What did they do? And Jesus says, don't worry about what they did. Don't worry about the circumstances of that. Focus on your own condition. Focus on your own heart. And he says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, 
Unless you repent and believe, you will likewise perish. I mean, so the thrill of hope that comes for us is when we turn to the Savior. We recognize our inability to save ourselves and we turn to Him. Thrill of hope. The weary soul rejoices. And then it goes on. He says this. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. And so we don't have time. I've already read Luke 2, but, but you know it. Uh, verses 8 through 20. I mean, think about the humility again where, where the birth announcement isn't made through the mail. It's not made in Rome. It's not made in Jerusalem. It's made to some lowly shepherds. And the angel pronounces it and then there's this, this multitude of angels that then just sing this chorus of praise. The shepherds go and investigate. It says, likewise, we are to rejoice at this blessed good news. And then the second verse of O Holy Night, which I don't think we'll be singing afterwards. There's, there's typically, people will sing two of the three verses, but we're going to look at all three, and again, we're going to go through these next two verses very quick. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts, by His cradle we stand. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from Orient land. Now just as a side note, he's referencing Matthew 2 and the wise men and more than likely, they had to travel a large distance, hundred, possibly even a thousand miles. They came from the east. We know that. They followed a star. When they get there, most likely Jesus was at least a few months old. So for those of us who have these manger scenes and the wise men are there, we, if we want to be accurate, we should probably take them out. Maybe we can put them there maybe in like June or July. But nonetheless, we just should, should remove them. So he's referencing this. The, the, so the, the wise men did not come on the night that Jesus was born. But they did come. And you have this imagery here of light. Now, all throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is connected with light. You have a prophecy in Malachi. Or if you're Italian, Malachi 4.2. In Malachi 4.2, it talks about the Son of Righteousness coming. Son, S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness appearing, bringing healing in His wings. You have Luke chapter 1, 78 and 79, which is really referencing Zechariah. It says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, referencing Christ, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then we know in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light. So we know what light brings. We know why it's an important image to think about. Having lived in Florida for 16 years, I mean, people love sunsets and sunrises. In fact, all the tourists always clap, like, way to go, sun, good job. I think it was the first time I'd ever done that. But there's dark and then light shines on. I've been reading Exodus as we go through the series. And in Exodus 10, I'm reading about the ninth plague and there's these three nights of, three days of darkness right before the final plague. And just crippling in that society. I mean, it feels like we have three days of darkness often here in Syracuse. But in that time, I mean, they didn't have cars. They couldn't really function. They didn't have headlights and things like that. It was crippling. I mean, cities had walls built around them. And they would close the gates at night to protect themselves from perpetrators and thieves, criminals. So they're fumbling around. It's just devastating to this economy, to the people in Egypt. And, and it's this picture that, that light shines bringing with it peace and comfort and rest and security and hope. And that we can function the way that we were designed to function. By turning to Christ. 
And we also know, I, I grew up with this phrase, um, my dad always said, like, nothing good happens after midnight, so there's just no reason to be out that late. And we also know that people do things in darkness that they wouldn't necessarily do in daylight. I remember being a resident assistant at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I would um, have to do these rounds at 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. And oftentimes there was a noise complaint at like 2 a.m. You knock on the door, ask people to be quiet, and they would open the door. And the things that you would see going on in that dorm, I feel uh, I'm not going to say what was happening, but they wouldn't be doing that at 2 p.m. We know that the people do things in darkness that they wouldn't necessarily do in the light. And so this idea of Christ being light, I mean, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to draw people to it for peace, comfort, security, rest, hope, or people are going to shy away from it, find darkness, suppress the truth. Then it says this, the King of Kings and, and O Holy Night lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need. To our weakness, He is no stranger. That makes me think of Hebrews 4. 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is un- unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows our need. The incarnation shows us He knows our need. To our weakness, He is no stranger. Five years ago, I had two knee surgeries on my left knee. And um, the recovery process was much more brutal than I thought. And I remember going back to the orthopedic surgeon, and I would explain the pain and the discomfort that I was experiencing, and he would acknowledge it, and he would say that he understood. And I remember feeling so frustrated because it's like, well, I know you understand because you've read a book about it, and you've done this before, but you don't understand because you actually haven't had this knee surgery, and it's terrible. And yet we can turn to Christ no matter what we're going through, no matter what season of life we're in. And we can trust that He knows our need. And to our weakness and our pain and our discomfort and our hurt and our loneliness, He is no stranger. What a great Savior we have. He says, Behold your King before Him lowly bend. Behold your King before Him lowly bend. And then into the third verse. It says, truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother, and in His name all oppression shall cease. It makes me think of Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. It makes me think of Ephesians 2.14, where it says, Christ, He Himself is our peace. Tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. But in the same respect, those things that would divide us, He brings peace to each other. More importantly, He brings us peace to God through Christ. The freedom that Christ has established for us. Yes, freedom from the the presence or the power of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. One day when we're glorified, we'll be free from the presence of sin. As we look at what Christ has accomplished and we anticipate His return, He's freed us from the fear of death. I mean, think about that. We no longer have to fear death. Think about the implications of that. 
Because we no longer fear death. Like, we cannot say, I no longer fear death, but I'm worried about if we're going to make it financially this month. Like, those two are not compatible. If you don't fear the greater, why would we feel the, fear the lesser? I don't fear death, but I'm fearful that I may lose my job. Again, understand that, but at the same time, it just obliterates all of our anxieties because we no longer fear death because of what He's done, because of what He's accomplished. The freedom from that. Freedom from the fear of death that we can experience. Sweet hymns of joy. So the last lines. In grateful chorus, raise we. Let all within us praise His holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise His name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. I love that, that the song, I mean, all throughout it's talking about the reality of the incarnation, but then it gets into the be and the do, the fact that we are now one with God through Christ. We are sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, and that it's a call to mission. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Do, we're, we're called to participate in this, to proclaim His power and His glory with our lives and with words. Love that. I was doing a wedding uh, two weeks ago in Florida. I was officiating it. And you guys have been to weddings. I mean, the groom's standing right there. And, and then um, as the bride's walking down the aisle, everyone stands up and they give her honor. And people are weeping. And the groom is typically weeping. And, and she comes up and we got there. And it's like, if I said to the bride and groom, if I asked the groom, why do you want to marry this woman today? And he just said, well, I'm here, so we might as well go through with it. Like, that's not going to win her over. Like, that's, everyone would be like, oh, like in the wedding. Like, it wouldn't be a good oh, it would be a bad oh. No, like a, a husband and wife, like, like, it's his joy to marry her. Like, he, he, hopefully, like he's weeping not because his days are over. That's not an appropriate view of marriage. Like, like, it's his joy to be with her. He loves her. He, he wants to be there because he wants to spend his days with her. Honoring the Lord with her. We don't do that. Like in a similar way, it's not, God's not after our begrudging submission. It's our joy to be a part of relationship with God through Christ. It's, it's so that we can proclaim His glory and power evermore. Remember when uh, Julie and I started dating? It was my junior year of college. And, um, you know, like that honeymoon stage, like I'm, I'm re- it just changed everything. Like I'm rearranging my schedule so that I would wait 45 minutes when she got done with class just so I could walk her to her next class. And, and not in like a, a crazy like public display of affection, but give her a kiss, give her a hug. Like I just wanted to walk her to class. I just wanted to, to be with her. I mean, it started changing everything. It changed how I dressed. Like I used to think I was M&M. And then she started to actually like help me shop. And I actually started to dress a, a lot nicer. Like it changed my interests. I just wanted to be with her. And so uh, she'd be like, do you like... Um, you know, the show Grey's Anatomy. Be like, I love Grey's Anatomy. That's my favorite show, of course. What Not to Wear, Stacey and Clinton. They're awesome, of course. Pride and Prejudice, yeah, I could watch that. No, the BBC version, that's like eight hours long. Of course, absolutely. I'm not too prideful or too prejudiced to watch it. I'm in. It just changed all those things. It changed what I talked about. My roommates would get so annoyed, like we're sick and tired of hearing about Julie. And it's like, well, Julie's not sick and tired of hearing what I have to say. Like, it was just everything. 
And in a much grander way, like we think about what we've been given and what God has demonstrated through Christ. And it's like, it changes everything. It's our joy to proclaim evermore His glory and His majesty because of who He is, because we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. And the incarnation makes this possible. And so we live on mission out of an overflow of our relationship with Him. And so this morning, for those of us who are in Christ, I mean, we, when we sing O Holy Night, like, let's not go like the typical like, Missio Church, like O Holy Night. Like, but corporately, let's, let's sing this song and these truths. For those of us who are in Christ, I mean, let's find great hope and delight, not just in this Christmas season, but for our lives. And if you're here this morning and have not turned to Christ, I would encourage you, like Jesus says to the people in Luke 13, like this, to consider all the, the things that Christmas means for other people. Like allow the Spirit to look into your heart and today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. And allow the truths of this song to be evident in your life. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the truths of these songs this song. And we ask that you would uh, give us great joy and delight as we serve you and love you and pursue you. Thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you for the incarnation, the, the historical reality, the, the theological certainty, the, the personal necessity for each of us to trust in you. We thank you that you've broken chains. We thank you that you freed us from the fear of death, from the power, the penalty of sin. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.